Good evening, everyone. It is so good to be back here tonight. Um, my name's Danny. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, I am the campus pastor here at Mosaic at WDW. And as I was studying this pastor the last few weeks in preparation for um, what I believe God has for us tonight, um, there was a particular movie scene that kept coming to my mind. Now, disclaimer, it's really dumb, okay? You guys can deal with that? Dumb? Okay, cool. Um, it's really dumb, but it displayed to me the importance of what we're going to be chatting about in this passage tonight. The movie is a, um, a movie by Will Ferrell called Talladega Nights, um, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. Um, I'm not recommending that movie, but, and I'm also not showing you a clip, but there is a part from it that, um, that really resonated with me for this moment. And so if you haven't seen the movie, um, Will Ferrell plays a NASCAR driver named Ricky Bobby, and he is, um, and he is successful in his sport, and he is sitting down for dinner with his wife, his kids, and his best friend. And as they are sitting down for dinner, some of you guys already know where I'm going with this, um, but uh, they sit down for dinner, and he begins to say grace. And he starts it off as follows. He says, dear tiny infant Jesus. And, um, and, and then his wife Inter, like interrupts and says, okay, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. In fact, it's a little bit off-putting to be praying to a baby. Um, and then, but you see, the problem was that baby Jesus is the Jesus that is living in Ricky's mind. So he continues, he continues by saying, well, look, see, he says, I like the Christmas Jesus best when I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus, teenage Jesus, bearded Jesus, or whoever else you want. Um, and then he continues his prayer, and he says, okay, dear eight-pound, six-ounce, newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet, just a little infant, so cuddly, but still omnipotent. Actually, the word that he said, he used the word omnipotent. Good theology word. But as he is, and then he continues on his prayer, and then his buddy Cal loves this prayer. And in fact, he says, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it's, it's like, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party too. Because you see, I like to party. So I like my Jesus to party too. I like to think of Jesus like with giant eagle's wings, singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with like an angel band and I'm in the front row. And then his son says, and I like to, and my Jesus is a ninja and he's fighting evil samurai. Like, how can you argue with that kind of logic, right? Now, now we laugh at that because it's obviously, um, it's obviously a little bit extreme, right? And most of us, I would imagine, would listen to that and go, that's kind of problematic somewhere along the lines. Like, that's a little bit off. See, they had turned Jesus into whatever they wanted him to be based on their values, their preferences, their hobbies, their worldview. What they wanted was either a baby Jesus or an eagle-winged, southern rock-singing party animal, Jesus. The reason this scene is so humorous, though, is because it's extreme. But we have been, um, but as we have been journeying through the book of Colossians, where the central theme is exploring who is this Jesus in the Bible? I've been thinking about, man, how do I reinvent Jesus? How do I contort Jesus to fit into my image? I think about how often I believe in a comfortable Jesus. 
A Jesus who would never ask too much of me. A Jesus who came into the world to make me happy, basically. And therefore would temper his expectations in calling me to love those who are difficult for me to love. Who would never ask me to live a life of sacrifice, or at least not too far. Being willing to obey and say yes to whatever the Spirit might be calling me into. So how have you been adjusting the character or the nature of Jesus to fit you and your preferences, your worldview, your desires, your hopes? See, it is good for us that Jesus is identifiable with us. But what happens when we don't simply see our commonalities with Jesus, but we begin to contort him into into someone altogether different than who he really is, is damaging. As if it was, uh, as if Jesus is a statue, but the statue is made out of Play-Doh and we are just kind of adjusting it to fit where we are right now. Now, here's what really scares me though. As I was searching through this passage this week, what happens if you or I are not self-aware enough or that we don't know the Jesus the Bi- enough about Jesus in the Bible well enough to know if we have changed him at all? Now, the reason this matters is because biblical Christianity is different than every other major world religion in many aspects, but especially this one. Um, Every other world religion presents a specific philosophy or religious ideology that is usually based on the teaching of a specific person or group of people. Maybe it's Muhammad, Buddha, Joseph Smith. But Christianity is unique in the fact that we're not just following the philosophy of Jesus, But what the Bible talks about is that Jesus is alive. And because he is alive, we follow a person. And because we follow a person, we follow his way. That's very different than everything else. And what happens if we alter Jesus? Then we alter his way. And then we follow a different way than the way of the Jesus we discover in the scriptures. So that's why this matters so much. Now there's a novelist, her name's Anne Lamont, and I love and hate this quote because it's so true. Um, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that, Jesus, that God hates all the same people that you do. True. So who we believe Jesus be really does matter. Whether it is baby Jesus, party Jesus, American dream Jesus, Comfort Jesus, non-corrective Jesus, frustrated Jesus. Whoever the Jesus we have created to be, it matters. So here's my first question for you, for you to, to ponder tonight. Are you at risk of shaping Jesus into your image rather than allowing him to shape you into his? But let's carry that a step further. Or I guess, actually, let's go back. Here's the primary question we need to look into tonight in this passage. Who is Jesus? Who is he really? So it just so happened that in the church in Colossae, they were struggling with this infiltrating group who had, who had joined into their Jesus community. And they were literally redefining who Jesus was. They were a group of false teachers who were claiming that Jesus was not supreme, that he was not enough. And they had come in proclaiming essentially an other version of Jesus. 
So this takes us in the book of Colossians where we were hanging out. If you happen to have one of the Colossians um, scripture journals, uh, we have some in the lobby if you want to get one on your way out tonight. If you are online and you'd like to get one, just put, it in, um, just put in a request in the chat feature and we will get one for you in the coming days. Um, but uh, so I'm going to be using this little device and feel free to open up your Bibles. So we're in Colossians chapter one, starting in verse 15 tonight. And as you're flipping there, Paul moves, is, is moving now. It's kind of that bridge point between the introduction and the body of the letter. And as he is doing this, he writes this beautiful poem. We don't know if this is specifically a poem that was being cited and he just cited the full poem or if this was a poem that he himself wrote. But either way, it's beautiful. And we've been referring to it kind of as the Christ hymn or the Messiah poem. And you can see the poetic styling of it in the recurring phrases of he is or in him talking about Jesus. And here's what I do know. If you did nothing but spend a full year in this brief poem of five verses, praying over it, studying it, casting your gaze on Jesus through it, I would guarantee you would discover more about Jesus than you could ever possibly imagine. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and read the entire, um, the entire poem Starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, last week, Joel broke down the central characteristics of the first half of this poem, that Jesus is the Lord of creation, that it is by, through, and for him that all things were created. And this is so different than the version of Jesus that our world or different world religions look and see. Even then, many Christians, people who call themselves Christians, believe in. He is not just a moral teacher. He is not a rel- just a religious leader. He is not a political revolutionary. He is not simply who I say he is. He is the one who was before existence even came into existence. He was. This is Jesus in power long before he was ever a baby in a manger. And this is the Jesus that we discover when we read even in the beginning of Genesis, in Genesis 1 and 2. But then as we fast forward to his time here on earth, we begin to discover where we're going to be hanging out tonight, starting in verse 18. See, Jesus is not just the Lord of creation. He is also the Lord of recreation or redemption. So verse 18 starts with this simple phrase, and he is the head of the body, the church. Now, this is a common metaphor that is used throughout Paul's writings to describe the church of Jesus, that we are like a body that comprises him. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians, that each follower represents a unique and important part of the overall body. 
that this diverse, global, multi-ethnic, multinational family that is the body, the family of God, is unique and diverse and beautiful in all of that. And whether our gifts or our talents lend us to be more like a foot or the big toe or the back of an elbow, whatever we are, it's beautiful and it's needed to be a part of the body. And here, Paul is saying that Jesus, though, has a unique role in the body. He is what? He is the head of the church. Now, here's a thing that I have learned from taking anatomy in high school. The head's important for the body. It's indispensable if you want to continue living, right? Now, we can theoretically live without many parts of our bodies, right? You can get, um, you can get different parts of your body potentially amputated if you needed to, right? And, and you'd, in many parts of your body, you'd be fine-ish, right? But if you get your head amputated, it's all over because the head's vital, And Jesus is meant to serve as the head of the church, offering guidance, direction, vision, wisdom for the church. See, in the church, Jesus is supreme. You cannot have a church, the true church, without Jesus. You can't. You cannot have recreation or redemption, though, without the church. That's what we get throughout the story of the Old Testament, that the church is God's plan A for bringing about the redemption of the kingdom to the world. That's crazy because he didn't give a plan B. He's just using a bunch of knuckleheaded people like us to change the world and to bring about recreation and redemption in this kingdom paradigm into the world. It's crazy, but this is exactly what he has done. So you can't have the church without Jesus and you can't have You can't have redemption without the church. So Jesus is pretty vitally important in all of this. And when we speak about recreation, it's the creative process of the kingdom breaking into our world. See, recreating our broken world into his image of love, justice, and mercy. And as part of his family, we are invited in on this journey of discipleship. And Jesus made it so clear through his time on this earth that he would use us, that he would use women and men throughout the centuries to display the gospel, to be ambassadors for the kingdom and to invite people to know their adoption into God's family. Hence, the church is vital to God, but the most vital thing to the church cannot be a single leader. It cannot be strategy. It cannot be budget. It cannot be slick marketing, even though many of those things are are good, right? It's Jesus. Without Jesus, all of this is for nothing. All of this is just, at best, a a self-help social club. But if Jesus is entering the picture, then we are a part of something so so more creative, so so much more brilliant than anything we could ever comprehend or imagine. So for the church, Jesus is enough. Jesus is supreme. So let's continue on in verse 18. So he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, the word firstborn is an important part of ancient cultures. We've talked about this before. Uh, to be the firstborn meant to have the full inheritance, responsibilities, and weight of the family on your shoulders. 
Now, uh, this isn't a concept that's very familiar in our day and age. It's not really the way that our American culture works as far as the firstborn having all of the responsibilities and all the inheritance on them. Uh, but I had a, an opportunity over the last week when I was back in California. Um, my, I mentioned this before. My grandma had passed away. So I flew back to California for the funeral. And my uncle is the last surviving um, mem- uh, sibling of, um, of my dad. Um, and my dad and his other brother are both passed away. So we uh, were there. And my uncle, who is the middle child, is the only child left. So he had all the responsibilities on him, planning the funeral, starting to get to work on the will and the trust, making sure that people could come by the house and get things that might be meaningful to them. All of these little pieces, big and small, were all on him. Now, I could and other people could help and assist, but the reality was that it was all ultimately falling on him. So it was like a picture into that and what that means, that he is the firstborn. And Jesus, in his divinity, was never created. So he wasn't born outside, born into his human form and his human nature later. But as the son of God, he had the full inheritance, the full rights, the full responsibilities of, uh, on his shoulders in two ways. Now, again, earlier in the passage, earlier on in this poem, it says that he's the firstborn of creation. That signifying that before creation incurred, Jesus was. But not only that, Jesus has the right to the cosmos because that is his right in the created order since everything was created by, through, and for him. He created it. It's his stuff. We're a part of the, the his stuff. But not only does he have the rights to all the created cosmos, but he has the rights to offer up a recreation. And the reason why is because he is the firstborn of the dead. What does that mean? When Jesus was resurrected from the grave, he was the first one to ever do it. And when he did that, he now not only had the rights of creation, but recreation to bring others into new life. He has the keys because he didn't only just purchase creation, but also recreation. See, when Jesus was resurrected from the grave, he walked out of the tomb. He was bringing the long decayed garden back to life. Now, the Old Testament prophets, they believed that the Messiah would literally come back to make the broken unbroken. The decayed would come back to life. The distorted creation would be recreated. And as the firstborn of the dead, this is the authority that Jesus carries. Carries. He is still this now, right this second. He is the one who has this power, this ability, this authority. And Jesus is enough to enact redemption and recreation even into a fallen world like the one we live in. See, where the first Adam back in Genesis 1 and 2 was called to carry out the flourishing of humanity, that he was supposed to watch over and subdue the world, that he was called to reproduce and to multiply the image of God throughout, through humanity around the globe. He failed. But where he failed, the second Adam, which is what Jesus is called in the scriptures, was victorious at carrying out the recreation, the rebirth of image bearers. Now, why does that matter? If you have been reborn, if you have the spirit of God living in you, if you have surrendered your life to the lordship of Jesus, this is your story and this is why. 
because he purchased that right to allow you to be reformed. And not only that, now we who are reborn are called to help bring others into that reality and our world as a whole into that reality. This is so beautiful. Then he continues on. Let's finish verse 18. That in everything he might be preeminent. Preeminence, uh, a long word. And so I had to look it up and it simply means that he's first. He's the first. He is the first in every respect. In everything he might be First, there are no equals to Jesus. Jesus is not a part of a pantheon, which is the ancient world that they were living in, in the Roman world, where they were, where a lot of people were trying to put Jesus up there along with, yeah, Jesus, a God, just like Zeus or Artemis or whoever else. They were just trying to throw him into the mix. Now, Jesus is preeminent. He is supreme. There is no one like him. See, without detracting from the glory the preexistent son already had with the father, the New Testament teaches that Christ's resurrection marks out for him a new and a higher standing and authority and wins for him an even greater reality. Now he's the incarnate, obedient, complete, and perfect Messiah. And by virtue of his resurrection from the dead, Jesus is demonstrated to be the Lord of the universe. Now, how could that possibly work? To be honest, the realities that are at play here are bigger than my ability to comprehend them. Maybe you can comprehend more than me. The question I've been wrestling through with this is essentially what it's saying is he has always been all powerful and now he's even more powerful than that. I don't know how to put that together, but it sounds brilliant. See, somehow in the great mystery of Jesus, he was elevated even higher than high. His power extended beyond the unreachable. His brilliance shining even brighter than the brightest light that he already was. Yet somehow, yet somehow in the book of Philippians, Paul writes that Jesus was willing to set his divine nature aside and by taking on a human nature so that he was fully God and fully human at the exact same time. See, when he put on flesh and gained a human nature, he willfully limited himself, his power on planet death. But when he rose from the dead, his human nature finally matched, finally was arrived at the point where he could truly be the Lord of recreation, the Lord of redemption. And this means, and what this means practically is that no matter how chaotic, no matter how broken, no matter how destructive this world, its patterns, its schemes, the systems of it and its people are, Jesus is still on the throne. He is fully God. He is fully man. There are books and books and books written on the subject. And to fully even begin to get to the depths of the beauty of that reality won't be fully discovered until we get to the other side of eternity. But no matter how difficult today is, no matter what your week has felt like, we have a Jesus who fully understands and he is powerful enough to truly be present with you. Which is what it gets to in verse 19. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 
see, through recreation, Jesus is enough and Jesus is supreme. And throughout the Old Testament, God's desire was always to be present with his people. The only problem is that his people always wanted God's presence on their terms. Hence why after the destruction of the garden relationship, God promised to make his dwelling with his people in, uh, with the people of Israel. And it was going to be through a tabernacle, through a temporary gathering space, eventually the actual temple of Solomon that was built. And there was this place called the Holy of Holies. It was at the very center. Maybe you've seen a chart or a, a picture of what it would have looked like. But in the middle of this temple, there'd be the Holy of Holies. And once a year, one priest would get to go in there and he had to go through all these purification rituals and he had a rope tied around him so that if he went in, God's power, his might, his his complete holiness, if you were not purified well enough, it would be too much for you and you would just fall over dead. So then they would pull the rope with you back on it. This is how powerful our God is. So God wanted to be present with his people, but we couldn't take his true presence. But Jesus, but Jesus, but Jesus in John 1, it says, that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, why is this significant? The truth is, is why would God, why would God bother with us? Flawed, rebellious humanity. But not only was he willing to bother with us, he was pleased to dwell in him God was pleased to dwell. And when he made his dwelling among us, the the pleasantries of God were with us. He wanted to be with humanity. He was willing to even limit himself by adopting not just a divine nature, but a human nature as well, to be with us. Hence, why Jesus talked about himself is the true temple. That temporary thing that was in Jerusalem, he's like, yeah, I'm the real one. I'm the true one. You wanted to discover God's presence? Right here. If you look upon me, you look upon the Father. See, where the first temple, the physical building, could only provide a filtered presence between God and his people, the true temple in Jesus would succeed to provide an unfiltered presence with humanity. And now for us, we don't have Jesus literally walking by us, but Jesus did say, it is better that I should go because if I leave, then the counselor will be sent to be with you, the Holy Spirit. And if you are a follower of Jesus, then you have received the spirit of God, the one who is actually, according to Jesus, better than having Jesus standing right next to you. I don't believe that most of the time, do you? But Jesus said it, and he's a lot more trustworthy than I am. That is the power of the Spirit of God. This is the presence of God on display with his people. So by his presence, Jesus is enough. Jesus is supreme. Now let's finish up in verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Did you know that Jesus didn't come to just save your soul? Here's what I mean by that. That's, that's often the way that we present the gospel, but that is not the totality of the gospel. It's definitely true that God has come to redeem and to restore us, but that's not all. We see throughout the pages of the New Testament and the Old Testament as well. And specifically right here, what does it say? Let me read that one more time. And through him to reconcile himself, what? All things. 
Jesus is in the middle of creating a, a kingdom paradigm and recreating and reforming this world when he returns again. He is doing it presently through his church by bringing others to come and to follow the way of Jesus, to make disciples, to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them all that he commanded so that one day the family of God would dwell this recreated earth. Read the book of Revelation. It's fascinating. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. I don't understand much of it, but it's awesome. You see, the gospel is so much greater, though, than the idea that you should believe in Jesus so that you don't go to hell and instead you get to go to heaven. While that is definitely true, it's so much better than that. God's plan has always been more captivating than we could dare ask for or imagine. And as Paul wrote at the beginning of this poem, it is by him, through him, for him that all things were created. And not only that, it is through him that all things are constantly being held together. But at the moment of the introduction of sin and brokenness into our world, the image I get in my mind, I'm a nerd. Most of you guys know that already. But I think of like when Thanos snapped, right? In Infinity War. And there was that, there was that, that like boom that just went throughout the cosmos. And that's what I envisioned at that moment when, when man and woman, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God's desires. That sin and brokenness devastated and chaos ensued throughout the cosmos. But here's the good news. Because Jesus is the firstborn of creation and Redemption. He's the firstborn of the dead. He is now able to reconcile all things to himself. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you get this image that right after man, the man and the woman both rebelled against God, and this and the Satan who is disguised as a serpent is there, and and he is and he is basically letting each of them know what he is going to do as a consequence in response to their actions of rebellion. And to the serpent, he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the, very, this is the earliest recorded prophecy of the Messiah who would be Jesus. See, Adam failed in his role to protect the family of humanity and the world from the chaotic spirit of Satan. But God promised that a descendant would come who would step on the head of the serpent. That would be the, that would be the snake crusher. That, and when he would do that, he would have to take a, debt, a lethal blow with it, but it would be worth it. See, when Jesus hung on the cross, he crushed the head of the serpent. When he threw, even though he was going to have to face death in the process, but through his blood on the cross, peace was made. And through his resurrection, victory was secured. So let me read this verse to you one last time. And through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by what? How did he make peace? By his blood, by the blood of his cross. This is not just about personal salvation, although that it's part of this. This is the fact that in the middle of an active war zone, peace, shalom, has arrived. 
in that he is reconciling all things. He is ushering peace, justice, redemption, reconciliation, hope, love, and restoration into the seen and the unseen, to the earth and into the heavens. Expanding beyond the cosmos, God's work of redemption is already at work. And where the first Adam failed to crush the serpent, the second Adam, Jesus, dealt a lethal blow. And through his blood on the cross, we have peace with God. See, by reconciling all things themselves, Jesus is enough. Jesus is supreme. So who we believe Jesus to be truly does matter. In fact, I would argue that the most important question that you or any one of us, anyone else could ever answer is the question, who do I say Jesus is? My wife, Allie, is about 5'4". She is fair-skinned, blonde hair, and has a pretty sweet and soft voice. She's kind-hearted and empathetic, Okay. Now, imagine you have never met her or heard that brief description of her. And you came up to me after the gathering and you said, hey, Danny, I, I met your wife the other day. Um, uh, Allie, right? She, she was so cool. I'm like, oh, awesome. I'm so glad you met her. Yeah, she's really, really cool. I like her a lot. Uh, and, then, and then you start talking about her though. And you're like, yeah, she's so cool. She's so tall though. What is she, like 6'4"? And she like, her tan, it's like super dark. It's like beautiful. Wow. I, and, and then, man, uh, her, her, dark, her dark black hair is just gorgeous. Just so gorgeous. And then you just, and I'm just like kind of looking, kind of puzzled, right? And then you kind of keep going. You're like, and she has that like deep raspy voice. It's just so beautiful. I'd probably say something back something like this. Well, it sounds like you met an awesome woman named Allie for sure. But that doesn't sound at all like my wife. In the Messiah poem, we get a beautiful picture of who Jesus truly is. And if we are believing a description and assigning that description to Jesus, but it doesn't match what we find in the scriptures, it's not the same Jesus. This is why I'm becoming more and more convinced of the beauty and the magnitude of the scriptures. Not because, not because a book has authority, but because the spirit of God who guided the writings of it does. And that because in this, we discover who Jesus really is, what he really did. And when we take an approach that matches more like um like a golden corral approach to Jesus where we pick the thing, the, our favorite parts about him, but we leave out all the, difficult, all the difficult quotes that he said or the difficult things that he did. We, we end up with someone we can call Jesus, but it's not the same guy. See, we are called to discover who Jesus really is through the pages of the scriptures, that he is mighty to save. And guys, here's the truth. He is more complex, more brilliant, more beautiful than I have any idea of. And that's what I've been repenting of this week. That I do not even begin to understand the brilliance and the beauty of Jesus. Because if I, if I had a little bit more of an inkling, any inkling, 
How can I do anything except worship him nonstop with my life? He is fully God, fully man. And that alone makes him the most complex character in the story of ever. (laughs) Now, here's the truth. Whether you say you follow Jesus or not, I believe the more you learn about him, the more you hang out with who he is in the scriptures, the more you will be enamored by him, the more you will desire to follow after his way. And as you learn from him, you'll come to realize that his desire to redeem and to restore the world to himself is huge, that, and that you get to be a part of this recreation. And in fact, he wants to redeem and restore you and me. We're a part of this. He wants us to be on the journey with him. So instead of forming Jesus into your own image, will you allow him to form you into his image instead? The word Christian. The word Christian was originally used in the the ancient world just decades after Jesus' death and resurrection as an insult. Um, It's what uh, the Romans would call the, those who were following the way of Jesus. And they, they called them that because they were like, oh, little, little messiahs, like little, like little Christ, little Jesus is walking around. And what were they doing? They were doing all the little things that Jesus did, like loving the unlovable, caring for the poor, the hurt, the broken, the destitute. They were there. They were present. They were advocating for justice and peace with their every breath. They were making disciples with their every reality. They were speaking highly of Jesus and making him known through, their, through the things that they said and things that they did. And that was the insult. That was like the worst that they could assign to Christians at the time. You're too much like Jesus. <laughs> Got him good. Like, that's not very funny, right? But this is what happens when we know and experience the true Jesus. He doesn't leave us unchanged. So imagine if this became the hope and the heartbeat of this Jesus community here at Mosaic at WDW and for the church of Orlando. I have to believe that none of us in our world would never be the same. So if that's you and you are with me and you are already seeing the ways that you, um, you, you can sometimes create a Jesus of your own mind, one that's comfortable for you. I would love to pray over you and with you right now. So um, I'm going to go ahead and pray and the band's going to head on up. And if that's you, what I want you to do is simply pray with me in your hearts right now. Because we have a God who's faithful and just to forgive us even when we are, um, even when we are silly, even when we're knuckleheads, even when we rebel. He's that good of a God. Father, I thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you for his life. And I pray that you would genuinely help us to truly thank you for him by knowing him. That we would desire a relationship with Jesus that would be transformative in our hearts, in our minds. Lord, I know that we are in an unbelievable need of him. The only problem is we live most of our lives without ever truly realizing how great our need is of Jesus. 
So Lord, for anyone who is with me, that that you can that we can make Jesus into our an image that's more comfortable for us. Lord, I pray that that we would be able to truly repent and come home to you on that. That we would remember who Jesus really is, that he is more wonderful, beautiful, glorious, terrifying, magnificent than we could ever imagine. Lord, I pray that we would not be content with the Jesus that reflects our worldviews, our political, our social views, our, our family views, our religious views, but that we return to the scriptures. And we do that as a community so that we can be transformed by who Jesus really is. Because Jesus is better. He is enough and he is supreme. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.